As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for listening to the programme that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we dive into this week's show, I want to let you know about a very exciting competition. To celebrate 10 years since the release of Professor Alistair McGrath's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis A Life, we are giving away 15 copies, one for each chapter of the book, courtesy of the publisher Hodder Faith. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. This link will be included in the show notes, but here it is one more time. Premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book. But now for today's show. This is the eighth episode in our series on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. And our focus here is on Lewis as a wartime apologist. C.S. Lewis wasn't conscripted to fight in the Second World War as he had been in the first, but clearly the war would have had an impact on him. What impact would this have had, Alistair? Well, Lewis was, in fact, very worried he would be conscripted because he was only a few months away from the the cutoff date um, from being conscripted. But in the end, nothing came of that. And so Lewis, um, in effect, was able to serve um, as a part-time soldier in Britain, um, which didn't really distract him very much from anything. But I think the key point to appreciate is that the world really changed dramatically at Oxford as a result of the Second World War's outbreak. And one of the most obvious changes was that the number of students went down very quickly because they were being conscripted. And in effect, um, the... um, the lecture, lecture theatres began to be wound down and the whole teaching programme began, in effect, to shift. And Lewis found himself with less and less teaching to do. And obviously, and the wartime um, conditions weren't that good. Um, and um, Lewis found that uh, his travel arrangements were being made more difficult. Uh, everything really changed. And Lewis, I think, realised that um, the world had changed and Oxford had changed. Lewis was asked to preach a university sermon about the outbreak of the Second World War and spoke very powerfully about the, the, the difficulty of learning in a wartime environment. So basically, even at the beginning of the first Second World War, Lewis was aware things are changing. Well, and from a personal perspective as well, he had evacuees come and stay with him. He would have been living with rations. He volunteered in the Home Guard. So it kind of affected every part of his life, really, didn't it? Not just the academic sense. Absolutely. Lewis, as a scholar and as a person, was being impacted in a big way by the new arrangements. 
And one of the friendships that he cultivated during the Second World War was with Charles William and this uh, Charles Williams, and this turned out to be very significant, didn't it? It was. Um, Charles Williams was an editor at Oxford University Press. Um, now, in those days, Oxford University Press was actually located in London. Um, and uh, when the Second World War began, uh, Oxford University Press evacuated some of its key personnel to Oxford, which they thought would be safer. And one of them was Charles Williams. Charles Williams was a poet, a novelist, and um, Lewis was very excited that this eminent person was coming to Oxford. He was a specialist on Dante. And um, so naturally, Lewis said, I'm getting this guy involved. He's going to give lectures at Oxford. He's going to be part of the Inklings. And actually, I mean, Williams was an undoubtedly an important influence on Lewis, although it was not without its difficulties because um, Tolkien and Lewis were very, very good friends. And Tolkien began to feel that Williams had displaced him in Lewis's estimation and affections. So that was a difficult time. Tolkien felt he'd been edged out of Lewis's inner circles. But there's no doubt Lewis benefited from this. I mean, uh, Williams gave some wonderful lectures at Oxford, packed out on Dante, and Lewis himself found Williams a great stimulus to his own writing. So in many ways, it was a good thing, but it was a thing that wasn't always quite as good as it might have been. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about Tolkien there, because Lewis played quite a key role in Tolkien's writing, didn't he? Well, he did. I mean, I think that Tolkien really was a perfectionist. I mean, he, he, he wouldn't submit anything to publication. It took ages to, to do it. And Lewis was one of those rather more pragmatic people who said, well, for goodness sake, get it done. And uh, <laughs> it was not just a question of encouraging Tolkien to write and telling him how good it was. It was also encouraging him to stop writing and finish it and send it off. So Lewis, I think, was a very important influence on Tolkien. Was the Second World War the motivation behind Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, do you think? I think it was during the Second World War that really Lewis discovered his vocation as a literary apologist. And it's very important to appreciate that The Problem of Pain was not a book that Lewis decided to write. It was a book that he was asked to write. Uh, it was part of a series of works. And Lewis just asked to give a Christian perspective on the problem of pain. But I think Lewis felt that being asked to write what was in effect an apologetic work seemed to represent an external validation of what he was already beginning to think for himself, which was, look, I'm an atheist who became a Christian and know why. So I could write very helpfully for other atheists to help them make the same move that I made. So, uh, in effect, The Problem of Pain is Lewis's first work of apologetics. And it's, it's a very significant work in many ways. And one of the obvious points is that in its preface, Lewis explains um, about his own journey of faith. He became a Christian. And he very often will talk about his time as an atheist, what he thought then. And really what Lewis is doing is sending out signals to atheists where you're saying, look, I understand you. I used to be one of you, but I'm not, not anymore. Let me tell you why I've moved. And in this book, what Lewis is really doing is explaining how Christianity can take account of the problem of pain. 
Now, it's a very important book. It's Lewis's first work of apologetics. To me, I have to say, it does seem like an excessively rational account of pain, which doesn't really take account of the personal um, damage or the personal uh, discomfort or experiential um, alienation that very often suffering brings. But it's Lewis's first book in the field. Let's forgive him for that. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, what would Lewis have said, do you think, to people who suggest that the book is perhaps rather devoid of emotions for a piece of work exploring such an emotive topic? Well, he did deal with that in one of his letters. He says, well, actually, I just don't think you need this experience to talk about this. It's a kind of um, a rational issue. Of course, Lewis would later experience very significant bereavement issues with the death of his wife. And his book, A Grief Observed, adopts a very different approach to suffering. But that's for later. And so in a nutshell, what was Lewis's answer in, in, this, in this first book to the problem of pain? I think it's a complex answer. One is that we tend to have these preconceived ideas of what God ought to be like and what is good for us. And maybe the existence of pain is, in effect, saying to us we have to reorientate our expectations and realise that what we think ought to happen isn't necessarily what is good for us. And Lewis also has quite a significant discussion of um, what it means for God to be good, because we have this idea that good God would not allow suffering. And Lewis is saying, well, no, good God wants to make us good. And suffering very often is something through which we can learn. Above all, learn that we are mortal creatures and come to terms with that. And that's where that famous slogan that, you know, um, suffering is God's megaphone to a deaf world. That, that basically is trying to make that point. But there's a lot of wisdom in it. And actually, the book is still very widely read because although it does have some shortcomings, it's still a very good reflection on this problem of pain in the Christian life. And do you think Lewis intentionally set out to become a Christian apologist or was that just, you know, being asked was that, and, and then writing it? Was that kind of something where he saw it happening and then just began to do it a little bit more? I don't think Lewis intended to, although I, I guess he always realised this was something he could do. But if you look at, at um, the earlier work of Pilgrim's Regress, you know, in one sense, that is a work of apologetics. But it's really Lewis clearing his mind. And it's quite a clunky book to read. You know, it's one of Lewis's least best-selling works, if I can put it like that. Um, and Lewis, I think, realised this was not an easy book to read. But what you notice about the problem of pain is that Lewis has worked on his writing style. It's much easier to read. There are lots of memorable phrases. And so Lewis, I think, has, has now developed two um, skills, which I think are really important. Number one is he can write very accessibly and engagingly. And secondly, he has thought through how his faith impacts on how he thinks and some of the big questions of the world. So in effect, we now have someone who has thought this thing through and is able to express himself, to articulate his ideas very, very clearly. And that points clearly towards Lewis being a literary apologist. We've recorded a whole series on mere Christianity, but how did Lewis's broadcast talks for the BBC come about? Well, Lewis, I think, again, was asked to do something. Um, and in this case, it was, he was asked to give some broadcasts for the British Broadcasting Corporation during the Second World War. 
Now, Lewis had never done any broadcasting before, and it's very significant for him that he was asked to do this. He said, somebody wants me to do this, I'm going to do it. Um, interesting, the person who asked him had read The Problem of Pain and thought, this guy could speak well. And of course, um, they did. The problem was the BBC weren't sure whether Lewis would come across well on radio. So they had to do a microphone test. Now, anyone who knew Lewis would say, look, he has this wonderful speaking voice, which was described by his friends as a, a port wine and plum pudding voice, i.e. very rich. But they did it and they, he, Lewis passed for flying colours. So he did, in effect, a series of... Um, talks on really Christianity, um, how Christianity makes sense of our world. And um, it's partly apologetic, although really it was there to kind of way reassure the British public during the Second World War. And it was very important for the BBC that Lewis was a lay Christian. They, they were worried that um, that they were being um, that there were too many bishops or, or Christian leaders speaking. They wanted someone who could speak as an ordinary lay Christian, preferably somebody who was very articulate and with a very good speaking voice. And Lewis passed on every count. So Lewis um, gave thought to these very carefully. Um, he was aware that he had only 15 minutes or whatever it was to speak and um, had to choose his words very, very carefully. But they went down very, very well and rapidly. They became very, very influential. And the BBC liked them so much that, in effect, Lewis had to do three more series of lectures. Um, and again, they went down very well. And actually, what mere Christianity is, is that four series of broadcast talks brought together. If you look at mere Christianity, you'll see it has four books. And you won't be surprised to know that each of those books is one of these series of BBC broadcasts. Now, how did an Oxford scholar who, you know, is used to doing sort of scholarly lectures adapt his language to speak to the masses? Because it's quite a different technique, really, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, Lewis was extremely good at talking to Oxford undergraduates. But that doesn't mean you're any good talking to a wider audience who don't actually speak in a scholarly manner. And I think one of the things that Lewis found really helpful even though he also found it very discouraging, was that he was invited by a group of people, including the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, to get involved in talking to Royal Air Force crew about the Christian faith. And this was a sort of morale-boosting effort during the Second World War. And Lewis went round um, airfields air, air in Britain talking to the ground crews and very quickly realised that the way you spoke to Oxford undergraduates did not work for RAF <laughs> ground crews, uh, and adapted his mode of speaking. And actually, after the Second World War, um, Lewis gave a lecture um, in Wales um, on Christian apologetics. He says, you have to learn the language of your audience. You, you've got to learn the way they speak and, in effect, be able to speak that language. And Lewis, I think, clearly learned how to do that, because when you look at those broadcast lectures. They avoid technical language. They give good illustrations. They're grounded in his anticipated audience very, very well. And in many ways, that's why those broadcast talks and subsequently Mere Christianity secured such a, such a following because they spoke so well to that audience. Now, obviously, with the passing of that audience, Mere Christianity doesn't speak quite as clearly but even so, it still does it remarkably well. 
And he said, didn't he, I think it was in, in that talk again, um, Christian apologetics, he says that the power to translate is the test of having really understood one's own meaning. I mean, what, what did he mean by that? What Lewis meant by that is that um, when you're trying to explain something you think you understand, if you have problems explaining it, maybe you haven't really understood it. And therefore, in effect, Lewis welcomed this as a challenge because in effect, Lewis was saying, having to explain this to a different audience is forcing me to make sure I've really understood it and able to express it and explain it to this specific group of people. I find that as a teacher, and uh, Lewis is quite right. It is, I have to say, a slow and painful process, but Lewis certainly managed to master it. It's a very important thing to consider in apologetics as well, isn't it? Because if you're speaking to a non-Christian audience, that's quite a different thing than speaking within a Christian context. Well, that's right. And um, I think you have to say, not only do you have to speak a language they can understand, but you have to make sure you can connect up with people's concerns. In other words, you know what their objections or concerns are and begin to meet them. What I often wonder is, who was Lewis talking to to make sure he really gained a sense of the obstacles to belief? Now, Mrs. Moore was not a religious believer. And I sometimes wonder if she articulated the concerns, concerns Lewis wasn't able to actually answer, but nevertheless felt he had to deal with in the course of those um, discussions. So maybe she played a role in those talks. You mentioned that one of the reasons that the BBC wanted Lewis was because he was a layman. And I, I wonder if perhaps one of the other ones is that he was speaking sort of outside of denominations, as it were. I mean, obviously, he came from within the Church of England, but he was speaking quite generally. How did he ensure that he didn't bring just his own denomination into those talks that he was giving? How, how was it, in, in inverted commas, mere Christianity? Well, I think this is a really very important question because you're right. I mean, Lewis speaks to every Christian across denominations. And I think that Lewis intended to do that. He had read Richard Baxter, a well-known Puritan writer um, of the 17th century, and was, was intrigued by Baxter's phrase, mere Christianity, which Baxter basically said is, is just ordinary, consensual Christianity. And Lewis said, I want to be like that. And so although he is an Anglican, Lewis, in effect, does not speak as an Anglican. He speaks as someone who is able to speak to Anglicans, but also to anyone. And Lewis's point is that we really need to be able to speak about a consensual Christianity rather than prioritising any particular denominational position. And Lewis had lots of friends who were Catholic or, or um, Presbyterian or others uh, and talked to them. And a lot of his students, for example, uh, went on to significant positions and had denominational commitments. Lewis used them as sounding boards. Do you think I've got this right? If not, tell me what the problem is. So Lewis was interacting, like with the Inklings, uh, with a group of people who in effect would be able to help him make sure he was speaking beyond his own denominational context. So I think that the key point to make here is that we have a very gifted speaker and writer who knows that he needs to listen to other people to make sure that he speaks and writes as effectively as possible and with the needs of the intended audience firmly in mind. 
We're going to talk a little bit more in a later episode about his propelling to fame and, and kind of the aftermath of that. But why did these broadcasting talks propel him to such a level of fame, do you think? Well, I think the real answer lies in the very distinct role that the British Broadcasting Corporation played during the Second World War. Because in effect, um, people listened to the radio more than they normally would because they couldn't go out quite as much as they used to due to wartime um, stringencies. And I think one of the things that uh, this austerity culture brought about was people, in effect, using the radio as a source of information and entertainment. And Lewis, in effect, became the religious voice of the BBC. That wasn't what Lewis expected to happen, but it's what did happen. And he was seen as reliable, authoritative, wise and non-controversial. And so it wasn't something really Lewis planned, but it just happened. And in effect, it meant that Lewis emerged from the Second World War with a, an intense reputation in England. But this does not explain why Lewis came to be regarded with such enthusiasm in the United States, where nobody had heard these broadcasts. Uh, hardly any of these have survived in a recorded form. And as far as we know, nobody in the United States heard these. But they did read other works by Lewis and found them very exciting and interesting. Well, Alistair, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today, but we will carry on discussing these important issues in future episodes. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson, and Professor Alistair McGrath. And don't forget, we're giving you the opportunity to get a free copy of Alistair's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. That's premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book. Thank you for listening and see you next time where we'll be hearing more from Alistair on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis.